You're listening to Creative Capes by Future London Academy. Honest conversations with designers, entrepreneurs, and innovators. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. Hello, dear design leaders from around the world. I'm Ekaterina from Future London Academy, and welcome to another episode of our leadership series. And my guest today is Guy Duncan, Chief Technology Officer at Tide, one of the fastest growing fintech companies in the UK. Guy has over 20 years of experience in tech leadership, previously as a CTO of BMW and other large organizations like Valtech and PayU. I'm recording this intro just after we finished the conversation and I'm still processing all the thoughts and advice Guy shared. Be prepared to get really practical insights on how to convince your leadership team to launch your ideas, how to reduce your work stress, and how to prioritize your time as a C-level executive. This was such a fantastic chat, full of philosophical side threads and really personal stories, so I'm sure you will enjoy listening to it. If you want to see a video version of this interview, check out our YouTube channel at Future London Academy. Enjoy! And hello, Guy. Hey. Hey. Hi, Atropina. Today, we are having a conversation with Guy Duncan, uh, the CTO of Tide, a fintech company, very, very well known and established in the UK. And uh, before that, Guy worked as a CTO at incredible brands like BMW and PayU and just had an incredible career in technology for the past over 20 years. Yeah. Uh, he started his own companies. He worked in a great fantastic companies he also has a lot of passions and interesting creative hobbies and side projects that we'll talk about in a second as well but uh, i'm very excited about our conversation and i want to start with 10 rapid fire questions are you ready guy yep i'm ready i'm ready for I'm... the rap- rapid fire questions amazing uh first of all how do you take your coffee espresso flat white so i'm actually a tea drinker no way! Oh, okay. I, I do do some, some maybe a little bit of coffee. I love coffee, but uh, I'm a green tea guy. So Okay, green tea guy. Uh, that sounds like an answer. London or New York? London. How many hours of sleep do you usually get? Uh, I need, I'm a seven-hour guy. I need, I need at least seven. Um, seven sleep hours. is really important. Yeah, I really, I kind of, if I get under seven, then I get really grumpy. So okay, one book you would recommend everyone to read right now? Um, Sooner, safer, happier, uh, and it's basically by Jonathan Smart, and it's basically anti-patterns and patterns for business agility. So it's kind of like an, an some pretty advanced concepts, but I really like how he writes, and he really gives really really good concrete safe examples. So you know, if anybody's interested in scaling agility in their business whether it's a startup or a big scale up or whatever uh sooner safer happier it really resonates with me really really like practical really good practical examples so i am putting it on my list right now because i was just looking for the book like that so that is a great recommendation thank you uh describe yourself in three words three words um passionate focused and loving that's a wonderful combination. Working from home or office fun? Mm. Well, I really, you know, the last year it's been working from home, which has its advantages. Um, but I really need that interaction and that collaboration 
I'm really missing that, right, in terms of that contact. Uh, so I think probably would be best if it's a combination. I think that we can learn a lot from this re working from remote. I mean, it's been amazingly successful for us in our business. Um, it's really, really been successful. Um, but also, too, I think you need that collaboration. So I think that with people saying, hey, we're going to everything is going to go fully remote. I don't know if that's a good answer because I think we, we need that kind of interaction, particularly for innovation cycles. You know, like if you're new to a company, you need to kind of build those relationships and interact with people. So I think you I need totally a agree. You need a hybrid. You need a hybrid I model. I totally agree with that I'm definitely uh, more of a physical type of person than digital digital people. Quality you value in people the most. One quality. Honesty. Good one. Professional achievement you're the most proud of. Uh, professional achievement. Um, building out the world's first internet voting platform used in binding elections. So. Wow. Wow. Uh, that is an impressive achievement. First thing that comes to mind when I say the word joy. First thing that comes to mind when you say the word joy. For me, Godzilla. <laughs> yes, yes, you do have the whole collection of Godzillas. Uh, I love this. And everyone who can see, like, there is a lot going on in the background. This is just yeah. super impressive. Yeah. And there are lots uh, of them. So, I don't think many people associate joy with Godzillas, but I'll well, take this as an answer. Well, and I think on a deeper level, that's kind of that youthful, right? That kind of beginner's mind, uh, that kind of, you know, that feeling of excitement when you discover something new. Um, that's really cool. Really, really value that. Amazing. I have last question. Best thing about being a CTO? Best thing about being a CTO? Um, I get time and space to really work on problems. So. You know, I think I, the real title is chief problem solver. And I think on, you know, being a CTO and working on innovation and innovation cycles, I think it's really about solving really meaningful problems and really digging in. And they're hard problems. They're not like problems that you can just go and get a book and read and then solve. Um, usually it's, it's a multifaceted, complex problem. And there's a people element and there's a technology element. And you need to bring that all together. It's about the emotional IQ and also the intellectual IQ to really solve the problem. And I think for me, um, of late, it's about solving problems, but also solving them in a sustainable way so that you can basically continue to build upon the success, right? You always get better and focus on that. So uh, That is a fantastic answer. And that leads us to the second part of our conversation, which is a proper deep dive into all difficult <laughs> things about you, about life, about the world of leadership. And I would love to start with the very beginning about your childhood. And I heard lots of stories about your creative childhood. So I would love to hear more about how was it growing up in the US? What do you remember about being a kid, running around? What formed you as a person? Anything that comes to mind from uh, your backstory that we'd love to tell us? Yeah, so, the, you know, I was born in 1966, so I'm 55 years old. And that world that I was born into and where I was raised, it, it, it's, I think that that experience, for the most part, at least in the U.S., is gone. Uh, so I was born in a place called Omaha, Nebraska. It's a city today of about a million people. Then it was quite a bit smaller. And it's in the middle, you know, it's a Midwestern town. It's actually a pretty cool progressive town, but all around it, it's, it's, it's all red, right? It's very conservative. But 
like when I was a kid, true, true story. God's honest, true story. Eight, nine years old, would get with my friends, we would get our shotguns and a packed lunch, and we would get on a city bus, and we would take the bus out on the outskirts of the city, and we'd literally go up to a farmer's house, knock on the door and say, hey, can we walk and hunt your fields? We'd walk the fields and we would shoot pheasants. We'd put the pheasants in a bag, and then we would get back on the bus, and the bus driver would say, how did you kids do today? And we would show them the pheasants that we caught, and then we would ride with our shotguns on the bus back into back into town. Now think about that. Eight, nine-year-old kids doing that today. I'm, no parents, no, you know, we're just doing this. I mean, that world is is gone, right? I mean, and I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it was certainly the world that I grew up in. Both my parents were artists. So my father was a printer, a po poet. He printed books by hand and he was, you know, very into art. And he was really exceptionally good. He printed all the great American poets in the last century. And my mother was a playwright. She ran children's theater in Omaha. She built a children's theater. She started the first um, all-black African-American dance company in 1972. She was a storyteller. Um, both my parents were these folks who really exemplified that example of follow your passions, follow your dreams, and just get after it, right? So I grew up in that environment with that kind of support. Um, and very lucky, very fortunate. I grew up in the right place, the right time to the right parents that afforded me opportunity and uh, opened up doors for me. And so I feel very blessed that I had that opportunity, so. Wow, your childhood sounds incredible, I have to say. I mean, stories of <laughs> traveling on buses and farms and, and just like enjoying yourself, but also the fact that you grew up with very creative parents. And I, yeah. I suppose that's what um, was really surprising for me to learn about you that after growing up or while growing up in a very, very creative artistic family, you went almost, I would say the opposite route of technology, or at least that's how I suppose society thinks that technology is the opposite of creativity. Um, and I actually, I, I have a similar story, but I, I actually studied programming first and technology was my first, first passion, but I actually moved to the creative world from it. So I do understand how both of them link, but how, what was the decision-making for you? Why after growing up uh, kind of with this uh, like, printing environment of beautiful books, you actually decided to go into technology. What was attracting for you in that world? Well, I, you know, by having a mother who ran a children's theater, right? Um, by the time I was 18, I think I had acted in 40 plus plays. Um, I had been around artists. And to me, this is gonna sound crazy. I don't see a difference in terms of artistic expression between like a canvas, right? A painting and code. I think it's the same thing. Yeah, so for me, there's really no difference. You know, if I look, if I go to the Tate Modern and I look at a Rothko, right? And you go to that beautiful Rothko room and you see that contemplation. There are moments where I will look at, not my own code, but I will look at other engineers' code and I will say, it is beautiful. It is beautifully artistic. And it might be that that uh, code itself is really clean and simple. I'm very fascinated by functional programming languages. I think it really enables that type of clarity of purpose. And to me, it's very beautiful when technology and product are seamless and brought together in a flow state. We always talk about flow. Flow is so hard to get to, right, in terms of what you work on. I mean, if you can get 
a few minutes every day where you're in a flow state, I think you're really blessed, right? I think that's really good. And to me, about unlocking innovation, I think that's where the creativity comes is, is really solving the problems of engineers and product folks and making the world and the environment that they work in in terms of the publication and the promotion of that code, make it beautiful, make it something enjoyable. Don't make it something that's hard. And if you have that mentality about embracing those problems, embracing those constraints, embracing suffering, right? Suffering, I mean, I'll talk about that because I really practice a very active yoga practice. I really focus on, you know, present mindedness, mindfulness and well-being, well-being of myself, but also well-being of the team. And to be able to focus that on in a sustained way, that that is a that's a pretty beautiful expression. And I think as technologists, we often get pigeonholed as, you know, not necessarily high emotional IQ, um, more analytical. To me, it's about bringing both sides together and and being open to it and being open to that innovation and that change. So um, I think it's really important and we we also have a tendency i mean we we know this we become victims of stereotypes and labels and those stereotypes and labels they can limit you if you let them you know i i, I like to break all that down and just let it go i love it and there are so many things they actually mentioned that would love to unpack you just every time you talk i think there is so much uh meta, so many metaphors and wisdom comes out of you but let me go back to a couple of things that you actually said they're very interesting you mentioned yoga as something that you feel very passionate about and i heard the metaphor that you use around leadership and yoga that I would love uh, to dive into so how do you see the parallels between leading a team and teaching the team and actually yoga practice i do a daily practice of yoga and my yoga practice i like the yoga because it breaks me down um, physically and also mentally and then it allows me to meditate allows me to have that present minded and to me a very good well-structured day is starting off with my yoga practice I like to talk a lot about the parallels of yoga and that dojo and that personal mat, so to speak, that personal practice in terms of your agile practice within your company. And I think it's a really powerful metaphor. If you can't be honest with yourself, if you can't love yourself, how can you love the company that you work for? If, if, if you're not willing to be honest and contemplative about you know, your own personal accountability in terms of your practice, in terms of yoga and your meditation and being present-minded, how is it that you can be loving and caring for the people that you work with every day? And so I think that if you want to do advanced yoga, it requires consistency, focus. It requires a lot of commitment and it's a year-long journey to get any good at all, right? You know, I can do a handstand and I can do some pretty advanced yoga, but I didn't start there. I didn't start doing that Ekaterina, right out of the gate. And I think that that's a really good metaphor for agile practices and innovation. You can't start just doing it right out of the gate. You have to build up. You can't start doing a full handstand in the middle of the room. And you can't, you know, you, you can't do that. You need to start with the basics and you need to basically be really good at it. And you need to commit to those values, right? Of openness, of transparency, of servant leadership, of really serving the team and really listening to the team and removing their suffering so that they have room to innovate. So if I, as a leader, if I can remove suffering, if I can help the team, if I can help to alleviate their problems so that they can be free to basically get things done and innovate, then I'm doing a good job. 
that's a wonderful way to explain leadership and um, the journey that all of us take throughout our careers in life that even though we want we might want to do a handstand straight away we need to learn all the basics we can't jump straight into the most advanced things uh, but uh, the good news is if we do practice it daily if we do try new things as we keep practicing then we will get better at it and eventually we'll get to any trick that we like, any advanced level that we like, as long as we commit to it. Um, That's right. This, this yeah. is really beautiful. And another thing that you kind of mentioned about the stereotypes about uh, tech people and uh, kind of being potentially introverted or uh, lacking emotional intelligence. And again, I know a lot of very extroverted tech people, but in general, I have to say that uh, I suppose different teams have different uh, atmosphere and vibe in their teams. What would you say, first of all, about the, the technology teams that you work with? Uh, is there anything that we should know when we work with tech teams that will be helpful for, for us as design leaders, the way we communicate with them, the way maybe uh, they express their ideas and emotions differently? So we need to see that angle as well. Yeah, so I think it's really important to understand that people express themselves in very different ways. I think we, my experience of kind of introvert, extrovert, it's kind of outdated and I think it's kind of needs to be thrown away because the reality is that we're all introverted and extroverted, all of us are. Some of us are extroverted in ways that are kind of not necessarily ways that we would say is extroverted. So let me give you an example. Some of us have very good verbal communication skills. Some of us don't. Some of us have exquisite ability to communicate, let's say, in drawing or in writing or in code. What's important is that you create, you have to have that meditative, calm kind of contemplation to really listen to somebody and really listen to their superpowers, right? To really get attuned to what they're really good at, which is usually tied to passion, it's tied to focus. And if you can listen to that and you can really hear it, you can then unlock it. And if you can unlock it, you know, it could be non-traditional. It could be that maybe somebody is not super strong verbally, but they could be that they're extremely strong in terms of their expressions through code. And that could be very extroverted. They could be very verbose. You could find out that they've got a side project on some open source project and they contribute 20,000 lines annually to it, right? You have to be open to this because there's so many different means. I think with social media, like what we're doing now on Instagram, it's also really interesting because with the social media modes, it's a way of intimately connecting in a very focused way. And for some people, it's also, it's, it's really comfortable for them to express that way, right? And text is a really good way. I mean, I, Slack, we're, we're a big Slack organization. There's some people who are extremely expressive on Slack but verbally, they don't have much expression. And so if you want to get that debate, you need to include that channel in your debate. You need to conclude that channel in your innovation cycle. You need to include that channel and allow people to collaborate in some non-traditional ways. And I think that's, that's really, really important. Um, I think we, we shouldn't be so tied up with how people do it. I think we should just be really focused on the outcome and not the output really be focused on the outcome and really allow people the time and space to express it in the way that suits them and not to be judgmental and say, oh, well, you, you know, you can't stand up in front of a room of 50 people 
and give a, a tech talk, well, maybe that's not the way that you want to express yourself, right? So. I, I love how you describe it. And, and I, I totally agree with you that there is no 100% introvert and 100% extrovert. I think everyone is introverted in certain situations, scenarios, and expressions and completely opposite in others. And I love how you talk about different channels of expression, like being expressive in code or writing and or verbal communication. I have to say current, I suppose, uh, setup of societies and companies benefits verbal extroverts more than any type of other communicators. And I've seen that happening in many companies uh, that whoever, not necessarily even the loudest, but whoever has the, the good verbal communication skills will always get the most praise, will get the career progression. Um, but uh, as you said, it's not necessarily the skill that everyone has. Do you have any advice for those uh, who maybe not necessarily feel like that's their strongest thing and they're not necessarily planning to change themselves into public speakers? What can they do to progress in their careers and be noticed and be praised for their uh, talent and their hard work? Right. Well, I think part of it is the culture that you're in, right? So I talked earlier about being honest and, you know, saying that you can't necessarily um, you know, love and and solve and have an open heart uh, in, in the company that you work for, unless you yourself have that open heart. And I think that in terms of the expression, you know, like the, the thing that really is your superpower, right? As a leader, right? As an organizer for future London Academy, right? If I talk to you directly, um, you know, it's this incredible power and uh, capability of bringing people together and curating this kind of knowledge base, right? To basically allow people to get together in a non-traditional way, which is really cool, to basically help and unlock innovation to, you know, whether whatever that topic is in terms of scaling up their business or whatever, to kind of create that fact sheet, really pragmatic kind of approach to, to making that happen. So I think it comes down to culture. I think it comes down to being honest with yourself about what kind of company and culture is important to you and to really be reflective about those values. And I think that if you are, you go through really specific about what's really important to you in terms of your personal career development, and you really look at the company that you're working for, and if it doesn't fit, leave, right? I, I think that, you know, or get a plan to leave, right? Um, because I think that, that to me, that's like the most clear piece of advice that you can't kind of get your expression. You can't get your, uh, you won't be able to unlock your superpower unless you're in a company and you're in a context and you're working with people that have the same values that you have. Um, because you know how it goes. I mean, we know how this story plays out. It's just, it, there's not time and space for it. And so what will happen is you'll end up being frustrated and constrained and kind of limited because you won't be able to express yourself in the way that you need to express yourself. So maybe it's time to, you know, pack it up and start a startup or, or I don't know, or maybe it's, it, maybe it's really about really writing what's important from a value perspective and then seeking out those companies that really meet that because there are some really great companies to work for, right? Um, and there's some companies that really, I think, get it right and are more aligned with, with that kind of thinking. Um, so that would be my advice. 
That's a great advice. And I have to say, I, I would personally 100% agree with this advice. And this is exactly the reason why I run FutureLearn Academy and not uh, currently work in any company, which there are many wonderful companies <laughs> there, but I just realized that's not necessarily that I, that fits my personality and my ambitions. But I have to say there are lots of people who actually don't like the stress of running a company and having right. a startup and building a team because that's a completely different set of uh, stresses and uh, problems and all sorts of, well, for me, fun things, but for others, they might see it differently. Yeah. So if someone wants to, to continue working in the organization, let's say they work in a fantastic organization that actually has a great mission. And maybe the culture is not 100% there, but they're not ready to give up on it and just move on. They do believe that they're building a great product and they want to change something. Do you have any advice on managing upwards, essentially, uh, if you're not the CTO yet or CEO yeah. yet, so you're not um, making all decisions in the company, but how can you influence the decisions of someone at the top? Maybe it will be about changing culture. Maybe it's about uh, a different product that you want uh, to be built. Any tips on how to influence decisions uh, that of, of, of uh, someone who is um, higher than you? Yeah, so I think that it, it really has a lot to do with collaboration. If you have a really good idea, it's important to go through a process of prioritization of those good ideas. And if you if you haven't influenced the organization you're working in with one ID yet, it's important that you don't bombard them with 25, right? It's more important to say, start with one. To qualify an idea that you wanna promote, like to push it within the company, and I'll talk a minute about how to promote it, I like to use a, a very simple framework, decision framework, that I like to call hell yes and hell no. So what you do is you go through the decision, go through the ideas you have, you put them in a column, which is the hell yes column. In other words, it's like super good. It's like so great, the idea. And there's no middle ground here. You don't have a hell maybe, that doesn't work. So it's either hell no or it's hell yes. And if And the way I do that is that Hell yes is hell yes. Hell yes really feels right. Hell yes is powerful. Hell yes is boom, it's hell yes. Everything else is hell no. So go through that and see how many actual hell yeses you have. And then of the hell yeses you have, find the one that looks like the most doable. And then talk to the people that you report to, talk to the leadership. But before you do that, it's important to get consensus. So in other words, I would go to some colleagues, I would go to some people in the organization, I would get people to kind of give you playback. I'd put together a nice deck, really simple deck, no more than five slides about what idea you want to influence. It could be a culture, it could be an initiative, whatever, and then socialize that. And then only after you've built the deck and you've kind of trialed it with some colleagues, then present it to a boss or somebody. And don't present it alone. Present it with two or three colleagues who also really believe that this is a hell yes idea. And what you've done now is you've gone through a prioritization process in terms of your backlog for that idea. You've sparred and collaborated with like-minded people to refine that idea and to make that idea really solid. And then you've gone through the process of actually constraining yourself, right? Five slides. This is the value. This is the problem. This is what I want to try to solve. This is how I can do it. And then you're sitting down. You're not sitting down with your boss alone. You're sitting down with a team to do it collaboratively, because it's never about you. It's about the power of the idea, and it's about the team. 
nothing gets done by one person. Everything gets done with a multitude of people. And so by you're doing a pattern of collaboration, you're doing a pattern of getting feedback, and then you're basically presenting something, which is a hell yes idea, one, to a leader. And I think if you go through that process, you'll be, it's no guarantee that it will be yes, but if it's no, there'll be really good reasons of why it's no. And it may end up being in a backlog and deprioritize, and then it will come up come up again later. This is uh, such a great plan. I feel like I, I, I think everyone should write it down as a <laughs> as the next thing anyone should do. And I totally agree with your uh, thoughts of talking to other people and getting their feedback and getting their concerns, because I feel like sometimes we are so passionate about our own ideas that we don't see our own blind spots. and that uh, community of people that is around you that you trust and you can ask for opinion and advice can actually reveal those blind spots so you're more prepared for your important conversation. Uh, and definitely putting together a deck or I love the, the Amazon, I think they do this whole press release thing, the one page document yeah. of why this idea should exist, whatever that is. But I also feel like when someone comes with already prepared plan rather than, hey, I've got an idea, let's do this. You kind of feel like they've done their work, they thought it through, and especially like you said, if they came already with people who are also passionate about that idea, um, that is a much easier decision for a leadership team as well. Uh, this is really, really good advice. Thank you, thank you, guys. And the other, and the other thing is, is that when you have a good idea, and this is going to sound crazy, it's going to sound silly, silly, but when you have a good idea, write it down. And then what I do, and this is a kind of a little kind of cheat sheet that I do is I have on my calendar, I have a weekly session with myself and I review the ideas that I have. Just, I, I, I go through it and I just look at them and go, okay, of the last week, is there an idea that I wrote down that's actually pretty good? And then I review them because sometimes when you write them down, they feel really good. And then you think about them later and you're like, ah, that's not very good. And so I go through that process and then I look at it and if it still has power, then I take it through a process personally with hell yes, I'll no. And I prioritize that way. And I'm I'm for the people who have worked with me, people know that I'm just ferociously, I'm just really into prioritization because I think that it's prioritization is not the whole story, but it's a big part of the story. Because if you do less, if you reduce whip, I mean, my motto is stop starting and start finishing, right? It's really important to finish things really well, to really get them finished. Get, I like to say, get things done done because then you feel really satisfied and then you can move on to the next thing. And it's very hard. I mean, I, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure you are a victim of this all the time where you wanna start thing, something, it's a good idea and you just wanna get going on it. And to me, I, I resist my, I hold myself back because I get so many ideas. What I try to do is I try to really constrain myself because otherwise I will drive the people that I work with crazy because I have so many ideas, so. I try to constrain myself. Oh, I love this uh, nugget of wisdom of writing your own <laughs> ideas and having a meeting with yourself to review them. I definitely have a, a special notes tab that says ideas that same I put all the ideas, but I definitely don't have the process of reviewing them in a more constant manner. And I think weekly reviews actually sounds like a, a brilliant plan. And I have to say everything that you talk about uh, seems like very, you already said you're very passionate about prioritization and processes. You seem like you do have a very structured and logical brain. Uh, I suppose, again, another stereotype for a person in technology, that's something <laughs> that 
is expected, even though I would say not everyone has that approach. But I love how you think very structurally and you have your own frameworks and processes. So how um, I would love to talk about two things about your personal frameworks, as well as the ones that you have with your team. So how uh, let's talk about the team first and how do you how do you structure the processes in your team? Um, that allow people on one hand to have space for creativity, but on another hand, actually everyone is going in the same direction rather than has too many great projects of their own or uh, kind of does whatever they want. So, so the first thing that I always tell my team, and I say this a lot, is it's always content over process. So it's always content over process. So I, I, I really value process. Um, I spent little more than two years working at BMW, right, in Munich. And I was working as part of the global team for the BMW Connected app. And that was an incredibly humbling experience about a company that inherently is just totally bought into the process. Like they actually, they love the cars that they build. Don't get me wrong. And the cars that BMW builds are amazing cars. They're, they're incredible vehicles. But for them, it's all about the process. And if you're, it doesn't matter how good of an idea you have, if it doesn't fit their process within the time frame that they have for their process, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how good the idea is. So when I left BMW, I said, hmm, because I really learned a lot about BMW about process. You can imagine, you know, they're the, they're the kings of process, right? They build cars. And I think process is really important, but I think that your processes need to be, they need to have a master and the master of the process needs to be content. And you need to be adaptive. And that's hard, right? It's hard to say this idea is so good or this content is so good, we need to treat it differently. But you do. You can't treat all ideas the same. And you need to have this kind of filter of content. And I love you know, being able to create contemplation. You mentioned Amazon and the process that they do of writing the press release for the product and the hypothesis. And in the innovation world, we call that, re, it's the innovation game called Remember the Future. And I love that. I think that's an extremely powerful way to kind of steal the mind on the idea that you have. And you know, we all know how it is. When you see a really well thought out idea and it's really well structured and it's got the data to back it, suddenly the process becomes a facilitator for that idea. And it actually accelerates that idea, right? Because the idea is so good. When you're hammering against the process, when it's work and you're trying to fight it, you know, you're trying to push against it and it's a struggle. And that usually tells you that the idea is not very good. That is very interesting. So if I, just to rewind a little bit. So you, you would say that as content first, so ideas first, you write your press release or whatever the, the, yeah. the future that you like. Uh, and then you try to go through the process that you already have established. And if it doesn't fit the process, that means the idea is not good. How do, how do you understand what? Or, 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 or it's so good, it's disrupting the process, right? Because you got to remember Conway's law, right? That organizational design is the, the organization is reflect, the organization will produce software in the way that it's organized. So there are cases where you you will come up with an excellent idea and the process will fight you. But the reason why the uh, the process will fight you is because the organizational design is set up against it. 
So you need to be conscious about that. Now, this is a big company problem, right? It's not so much a small startup scale up problem, right? You're talking probably a company with more than like 500 people, right? But you do need to be aware of it. I think that for me, going back to the metaphor of yoga, right? In my yoga practice, I do still, you know, I've been doing yoga for 10 years and I'm still learning new things. I learn new things every week, not necessarily every practice, but certainly every, every week I will incorporate and learn something. What I've discovered about learning new things is that if I learn in the context of flow, in other words, like I've got a nice yoga, yoga practice going and I just learn something without stealing my mind, without thinking about it too much, I've noticed that I've got a lot higher success of learning new things. In other words, it's like you've got to be in this kind of beginner's mind kind of state. And you've got to tell yourself that you can't do it or, or you can do it. You just need to just kind of just do it in this flow state. In work, right, we all have that experience of work flowing that way. And to me, that's a really important piece of data. We always talk about being data centric. But if you're pushing an idea through and it's getting tons of friction, that could be really good data that you're actually onto something because you're causing confusion and people are like, what is this? That could be really good. And it could, be, it could mean that you need to push 10 times harder. Or it could be that you need to polish your idea a little bit better. That's but, really interesting. Uh, well, how do you understand which is which? Because again, and that um, I suppose applies to startups <laughs> as well as big organizations. Yeah. I feel like uh, there is sometimes the, the problem of uh, not giving up on the idea that is bad, whether it is uh, you're building a startup and you realize, you know what, it's not working out, but you like keep pushing because you're not the type of person who gives up. Or if in the organization, as you said, you, you face friction, everyone is against you. I personally get really fired up by that. I'm like, yay, no one believes in it. So I'll make sure that you will <laughs> see how great it is. But when does it stop being sensible? How, what's the sign that you should give up on the idea or that's definitely a bad idea and stop pushing and breaking the system? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I think that um, it's kind of an intuitive thing. This is the craft part of it right? Um, I think that the thing that I do know is that for an idea, if you're going to push an idea and you're going to, and that, that requires resources and it requires time, my advice is make sure the idea is a big idea. Because the amount of effort it takes for a small idea or for a big idea, it's kind of the same in terms of change management. So I think that we have a tendency They'll oftentimes not be ambitious enough and to not really shoot for the moon, right? And I think that sometimes ideas die because they're just the ambition's not enough. And so to me, you know, that so that's one kind of thing that I've seen why ideas die. The other reason why ideas die is that the thinking, we've already talked about that, the thinking may not be solid. Another really cause of ideas not dying is they don't have, you mentioned it a minute ago, they don't have enough spirit. They don't have a sponsor. They don't have that person to drive it. And that's where, when I was talking earlier about having this collaboration model where you've got multiple sponsors to kind of, so it's not just your idea, it's actually three or four people's idea. Immediately, it has a much higher chance of being successful because you've got two or three people who believe in it, right? And I And I think that, we often get confused about innovation and we think it's something complicated. 
it's really about conviction, right? It's about belief. It's about having the true knowledge that something you believe in really matters. And I think when we when when you think about innovation in that context, and then you apply like the framework around hell yes, hell no, it really becomes powerful, right? It's really about the best idea. It's about creating a culture of meritocracy in which the best idea truly is coming up to the top. And people around, irrespective of who they are in the company, it's it's just really creating that culture of allowing those best ideas to come through. And I, to me, if I can advance that cause at Tide every day, I'm doing a, I'm doing a good job. So. Wow. Uh, wow. Just, I have to say, you have to write a book, uh, Guy, because I feel like your philosophies and um, decision-making processes are just incredible. And thanks for giving that advice. I feel like I definitely got lots of mental notes about uh, how to choose ideas now and what uh, thinking, how can I tweak my thinking process. I also wanted to talk about the, the personal processes that you have. You already mentioned your process of uh, writing the ideas and reviewing them. But I would also love to understand how do you plan, plan your life, plan your day, plan your week, plan your month um, in a professional or even personal way. Like, how do you know what you need to do and how do you know that you're doing it? Huh, that's a really good question. Um, of late, I've really been trying to plan less. What I've been trying to do is I've been trying to think about the time that I spend in work and who I spend that time with. You know, I was talking about that kind of flow. I've been trying to think about how I organize the work that I do so that it flows. And I've been trying to basically really work with the people and collaborate with the people who have that same goal and objective in terms of that flow and those outcomes. If you have a culture that's open and transparent, if you have a culture in which you're working in an organization in which people have open hearts, and they're really focused on alleviating suffering and making teams powerful and really removing those blockers. And you have a company where you've got servant leadership. From a planning perspective, you end up really being at service and you're going, you're flowing to where the suffering's the most to alleviate the problems. And to me, that's pretty cool, right? That's cool that if I can every day help a team to basically accomplish their goals and to basically get the outcomes for the business that need to happen, then I'm doing a good job. If I'm eliminating waste, you know, if I'm basically focusing on an area that we shouldn't be focusing on, or we're focusing on an outcome that's going to basically give us, you know, 5X or 10X, we're shooting for the moon, uh, we're having that ambition, we're stretching and getting that one extra engineer in and getting them trained up and getting them on a team that needs that expertise, then I'm doing a good job, right? And then I'm feeling good about it. Um, when I get too caught up in meetings in which I don't necessarily really understand the value that I'm providing, um, then I get worried, right? So to answer your question, I kind of, you know, we do an, we do quarterly planning. And uh, we do quarterly planning. And so I'm pretty heavily involved in the quarterly planning. And then I do this kind of tactical work 
around platform kind of in a day in, day out. So that's kind of like probably 50% of my time. The other chunk of my time, I'm really trying to work on Horizon 2 and Horizon 3. So Horizon 1 is kind of the next quarter, right? Horizon 2 would be, you know, a quarter out, maybe two or three quarters down the road. And then Horizon 4 would be four plus quarters. The more time I spend in Horizon 2, the better job I'm doing. So how do I scale myself so that I'm spending more time working on Horizon 2 and 3, right, as a leader? And that's really where I can provide the best benefit because I've got all these gray hairs, I've got all this experience. I can basically help steer and basically put the things in place today that will allow us to get to Horizon 2, that will allow us to get to Horizon 3. Um, yeah, I think that's really interesting. Um, I'm still learning though. I don't, I'm not necessarily all that good at it. Um, I still get distracted. I will still get caught up in things that I necessarily shouldn't get caught up in because I'm at service. So if somebody asks me to help, I'm going to jump in and help. And I probably do too much of that. I probably need to prioritize my own backlog and not try to help everywhere, but try to be a little bit more selective about where I do help. So that's a great framework that you described about thinking about your impact. First of all, so how much waste you eliminate and how much you're helping, but also about kind of different horizons and I suppose this waste you're eliminating or help that you're giving to which horizon does it belong. Am I right to say that if we talk about, let's say, horizon two, then it would be anything to do, let's say, with hiring or potentially building new products and features rather than serving the products and features that exist. What kind of things do usually fall into horizon two and three and four? So, so yeah, so horizon two, you know, horizon two and three would be around things like roadmaps, but, but, you know, much more leaning into the strategic connectivity. So, you know, if we're doing, you know, right now in Tide, you know, we've got about, you know, we're five and a half percent market share here in the UK, which is great. We're launching a business in India. I need to be spending more of my time on getting that business in India launched, right? So that would be kind of horizon two. Q4 of this year, we want to start really going after big numbers in India. I need to be enabling that. I need to be spending more time on working on India so that we can unlock that capability for India. So that, that would be a really concrete example. And if I'm spending too much of my time kind of caught up in the existing quarter, right, um, or caught up in the day-to-day -day that we're doing at Tide today, then that's concerning because I'm spending too much of my time in Horizon 1. And therefore, there's going to be a price to play in, for, in, in, in Horizon 2. Because if, if I'm not working on Horizon 2 or Horizon 3, then who is? I mean, it could be me and Oliver, the CEO, or Lawrence, the CEO for the UK market, or Gujarat. But inevitably, you know, our CEO for India. But inevitably, we need more. We need more critical mass. So, you know, leadership, there's an expression, you know, that leadership is reflective you know, where leadership looks and where leadership walks is where the company goes. And so to me, I like to use that metaphor of I need to be out one or two quarters in that horizon two, pushing into horizon three. I need to be walking there, talking there, moving there in order to move the business there. I think that's kind of how I look at it. And it's like, again, the metaphor of yoga, it's really focusing on, okay, where do I want to get my yoga practice? You know. 
um, what is it that I really want to work on? Maybe I want to work on side crane, you know, and I really want to get good at it. Okay, what do I need to do foundationally in my practice to get to that? Ah, that's fantastic. And uh, thanks for clarifying this because I feel like I personally struggle with getting caught up in things that need to be done for for now because they are important and they are in front of you and yep. uh, constantly reminding myself that there, there is the future that needs to be looked after because as you said no one else will be looking after it if it's not yep. you then um your priority should be thinking about the the, the other horizons rather than what's in front of you and and for me right um you know on a personal level just to unpack it a little bit you know as a society you know, to kind of be philosophical, but I'm going to be, because this is a great conversation, so I can be philosophical. But, you know, if, if we as a society don't start working on horizon two and three of the planet, we won't have a planet. So, I mean, I hate to be clear about it, but, you know, climate change is, is it's, it's existential. We need to be plugged into that to basically get the change that we need so that our children and grandchildren, et cetera, will have a wonderful planet to live on. And so this whole thinking of this long-term strategic thinking, we really do a good job of it in companies. We need to do a better job of it in terms of society in general, right? Um, so I think it's really important. We need to be playing a multi-generational game in terms of our planning. And I hope, I hope we can do that, right? I really, really hope we can do that. I couldn't agree more. And uh, yeah, I think exactly the, the, the framework that you described works in any sort of personal and global scenarios as well. And I suppose, uh, again, it plays back to a lot of barriers. The reason why we don't plan beyond our lives because we won't be the ones living on the planet. So it's very hard to prioritize those things. Similar to a company, uh, it's difficult sometimes to plan for a year, two years after because you might not be in the company after that long. So why right. would you prioritize things that might not ever benefit you? It is a hard decision for a leadership um, team. And uh, yeah, I suppose that's personal decisions that you need to make if you want to build something greater than you or do something greater than what's today. Right. Well, I think that, again, back to the philosophical, and then maybe we can get more pragmatic, but you know, the the the, the only thing we leave, you know, when we go is our reputations, right? So um, I think it's important that we, you know, we apply good hygiene with, you know, like our professional careers, right? And we do a good job with that. And, um, you know, we just need to do a better job with that in all facets of kind of our as as we move through this world, right? Uh, yes, yes, yes to all of this. I want to actually dive into one thing that uh, we haven't covered yet because we've been covering all the incredible successes and uh, you built just such a uh, fantastic career uh, at all these great companies like BMW and being at a leadership position in global organizations like that, it is a, a tough job. Uh, so I can imagine there were many situations and days where all these wonderful philosophies and all the great approaches, they unfortunately don't work because it's just a very, very hard decision, hard day. Everything is not going according to the plan. Do you remember a particular day or moment where you felt uh, lost, helpless, or just down and you, you couldn't figure out what to do what do you remember what was it and how did you get yourself out of it yeah so so one thing 
I really, you know, because I love problems and I love crisis. So I'm one of those people who's always done extremely well when there's a massive crisis. I just always have. I don't know where that comes from. Um, I would suspect that both my parents were probably pretty good at crisis management. Um, so I don't know where that comes from. So, you know, we was January of last year, right? Um, so more than 12 months ago, you know, um, and basically the Tide platform went down hard. It was really troubling, right? It was like 48 hours of just really trying to get it back up. And it was just really, and, but, but I thrive in that environment. Where I, where I struggle is um, I've always got to get things done, right? So I, you know, my kind of motto is stop starting, start finishing. But conversely, I get, I can get very frustrated when I'm not getting things done. And so I have a tendency of getting frustrated with that. And I think that can lead to kind of moments of kind of, kind of grinding frustration, you know, when, when the team gets stuck or when the team's just simply working it, right? They just need time and space to work it. I can get frustrated. And that frustration, that energy of that frustration, I have found can be extremely productive. So I think the meditation there, you know, again, with my daily yoga practice is the frustrations themselves are telling you something. The, the feeling of, you know, not being, getting done what you need to get done or the feeling of, of suffering or the feeling of you've hit a wall or the feeling that you've hit a plateau. I've found it's really good to lean into that, just like a yoga practice. So like when I'm doing a pose or doing asanas and yoga and my body's really complaining and it doesn't like it and it's like really maybe even painful, it's really important to listen to it and to say, why is that? Oh, why is my back really feeling bad today? What's going on? Ah, okay, I was lifting that thing yesterday. And I think it's really important to take time to reflect on that take time about why you're feeling those things and to really delve into it and again to have a conversation with yourself about why you're feeling that way what's interesting about that is nine out of ten times maybe not nine maybe eight out of ten times the feeling of frustration that i'm having with work doesn't have anything to do with work it's pretty interesting it's like if, if i really if i'm honest with myself this is my own personal experience that when I take the time to really unpack my frustration or plateau or my feeling that I'm not getting enough done, actually eight out of 10 times, seven out of 10, something like that, when I reflect upon it, it has to do something that's going on personally. Like a couple, couple weeks ago, I had a lot of stress with work. And the reason why I had that stress is my wife was in Germany visiting her family. She's German. She was visiting her family. And her dad was getting a surgery. And I was really disconnected from her and really dis disconnected from that situation. And it really took, you know, a lot of time of meditation and thought to get connected with that feeling. It was manifesting itself with frustration with work. But once I identified it, once I called it, and once I could see that, see what it was, work was actually going really well. So, you know, having that clarity and not to kill yourself with work because of something going on personally, I think that's really important because we spend so much time with work. 
right? We spend so much time ingrained in it for a lot of people, and I know I'm one. It's very hard to separate the personal from the business. And it's always so much better to be, to, to almost forget that you work there. Like you have that power. When you first started a company, right? You've got this real clarity and you've got this really product, productive because you're not caught up and bogged down in anything. So you can be highly effective. It's really important to have kind of like what I call a dog's memory, like to forget. Like when you something goes bad at work, just forget it. Just forget it. Just move on. Just move on. And just forget that you even work at that company and just start with a beginner's mind every day and keep things fresh and don't take things for granted, right? Wow. That's simple, simple, but really hard. It's really hard. I, that's a great advice, I have to say. And uh, I can relate to a lot of things that you're saying, kind of mixing uh, the, the work problems with personal problems and kind of identifying them in your head. And I love how you talked about frustrations as a, a piece of data that you essentially get from your from the world, from the body. There was a great saying, I forgot who said it, that uh, pain is knowledge rushing through your body with the speed of light. Uh, yeah. So essentially, when you hit, uh, I don't know, the um, the leg of a chair because you didn't notice it, uh, you feel a lot of pain in your foot because you didn't know there was a chair there. But now, you know, and yeah. this is exactly the knowledge rushing through your body <laughs> with the spirit of light. Uh, so now every time I feel any sort of pain which is might be frustration of me not being able to do something, or I feel like, ah, this is the knowledge. This is the data that I was looking for. That's very interesting. Uh, so I love that you have similar approach to exploring where is this coming from and kind of being curious about uh, why is this frustrating me? I think this is a fantastic yeah. approach. Yeah, and I think that for me, a lot of around personal accountability, right, in terms of the mat and yoga, has really helped been a very very powerful metaphor for personal accountability it's allowed for me to get closer to the work topics but at the same time to be much more distant from them and much more reflective upon them because my own personal accountability has been kind of I've taken inventory of that so to speak and said okay this is my thing and this is my own personal weakness or my own personal bias and to acknowledge it and go through that filter before I really lean into a tough topic within work. That is great approach. So <laughs> I want to leave with a final question um, that uh, kind of advice for, for all of us, but also reflecting on what you've done. And uh, if you could go five years back uh, and um, if you can remember what you were doing five years back. And uh, if you could advise yourself something that would uh, eliminate stress or uh, money or like any sort of problems that you encountered to basically make it easier, less stressful, happier uh, the next five years, uh, what kind of advice would you give yourself? Yeah, so, all right. So this is really personal, but I'm gonna share it because I think it's, it's it, you know, it's got power. So it was probably about eight months ago now in lockdown, you know, this whole situation on C-19. And I noticed that I was drinking a lot, right? I mean, it was like getting done with work and my wife and I would open a bottle of wine and then that bottle of wine would go and we'd get another bottle of wine. And so I just like, okay, look, because of work and the fact that I don't have a commute, I don't have a way of kind of segregating these things. And so I just stopped drinking. I just stopped drinking. And 
it's been really good for me. It's been really, really good for me. And I think my advice that I would give myself from five years ago would have been stop drinking then. So, and, and it's not that I'm, you know, I, I wouldn't describe myself as an alcoholic, but it turns out that it's something in my life that didn't add a lot in reflection. It's, uh, you know, and I'm fine, you know, having a sip of wine, you know, and I do miss having a nice glass of wine with dinner. But for me, you know, really reflecting upon it, it's it's something that I don't need. And it's something that was actually taking more than it was giving. And I think that's really interesting. It's really, really interesting. I mean, I've modified my behavior. I've learned a new pattern and learned a new habit of not drinking. And now that I've cut it off, I'm actually going faster. I think clearer. I sleep better. It's really nice. It's a good thing. The other advice that I would give myself from five years ago um, would be, I think that this whole C-19 thing, right, um, around, you know, kind of reevaluation of the values. You know, I was really busy, right? I was really, I'm really, really busy now, but I was even busier. I was flying all the time. You know, I was one of those guys who, uh, you know, at my job at BMW, I had an engineering center in Shanghai. I had one in Chicago. I had one in Munich. I had one in Portugal. You know, I was, I was always traveling. And I think my advice to myself from five years ago would be, you don't need to travel that much. You really don't. It's kind of busy work. It's inefficient. It's okay to be still and to really lean into these work topics, right? You don't need to to be present for it. You can delegate, you can hire people that can plug in for it. So those would be my two pieces of advice. I love them. Um, I will, I'll consider both of them. <laughs> they are really good. And definitely something that I could reflect on in five years. Uh, thank yeah. you so much for sharing this. And thank you for sharing very personal things as well, because I feel like that's, uh, well, we could talk about can do vulnerability of leadership as another interesting discussion and i feel like you definitely make it very you're very empathic leader and you make things very personal and approachable which is a, an incredible and very rare quality so i appreciate you uh talking to us and to our community today and uh, i'm so excited that you'll be teaching on our executive program for design leaders because i i feel like this conversation is just the beginning of all the wonderful things that everyone can learn from you so uh, this is definitely something that uh, I I can't wait to start. Um, and um, thanks everyone for joining. If you're not following Tide, uh, they check out their their account or their profile. Do you want uh, anyone to follow you on Twitter or anywhere else they can find you? Yeah. So yeah, LinkedIn. I'm 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 active on LinkedIn. Actually, on LinkedIn, I've been publishing kind of my meditative axioms about my agile practice that's yeah. fair and uh, i definitely hope that you will write a book because i mean i def i follow you on linkedin but uh, i would love to see a printed version considering i know that you have a side business that yep. is a publishing publishing house uh, yep. so uh, definitely the book should be happening and mm -hmm. uh, thanks again for for joining and thanks everyone for staying until the end thank you guy it was such a yeah. pleasure Yes, thanks for having me and uh, thanks everyone for joining. It's been really fun, a real privilege just to talk and you've been a great interviewer. So it's been really, really easy. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And everyone, thanks for joining and until next time. Yeah, cheers. Thanks everybody. Bye. Bye. 
Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you want to join one of these interviews in the future and ask your questions, follow us on Instagram. We are at Future London Academy. We are doing live chats weekly with some of the most inspiring people in the industry, so prepare your questions and see you there. If you want to learn from these people about how they work with clients and approach projects in more depth, join one of our courses at Future London Academy, taught by the best of the best in the world of design and innovation. And if you're ever in London, come in for a coffee. We love meeting new people. Thanks again, and until next time. Oh,